Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 13 of Doses of Darling. For those of you who are new to watching or listening, welcome. My name is Darling Membreño and I am a licensed professional counselor associate here in Texas. For those of you who are continuing to watch or listen, um, thanks so much. I have a few new subscribers this week, which is like really exciting for me. Um, I know that last week I kind of put out uh, an ask, um, what is it called? A, a call to action for y'all to comment and let me know what kinds of things y'all are curious to know about mental health or therapy or I don't know, anything, anything that has to do with my profession and um, questions that are in your mind. Mostly everybody has decided to answer on Instagram and Facebook, which is really interesting. Um, but I'm leaving the comment section open. If there is no possibility of commenting on Spotify or Apple or Amazon, whatever other platforms I'm on, definitely come on over to YouTube and comment here. Or I will leave my socials in the description below so that y'all can direct message me as well. And let me know what kinds of things y'all are curious about knowing. I, The ideas that I've gotten so far are great and um, also have reiterated some of the ones that I have had up, up, up my sleeve, <laughs> as I mentioned last week. So um, I think I'm going on the right path. I'm praying, still praying about um, where to take this podcast next. And I'm, I'm receiving all the guidance already. I've I have other ideas that kind of sparked this this week, even today. So I'm grateful for the friends that I can I can talk to about all of this, and super pumped about what's to come. There are so many wonderful things around the corner that are coming that I already see like are coming to fruition, and I can't wait to share. But I'm just gonna chill, pray, and. Um, wait for things to happen. And as they happen, y'all will get to hear the amazing news. So um, let's get into what this podcast is going to be about. So this podcast is um, pre all my podcasts with guests are pre-recorded. Um, but this one I recorded about a month ago with Dr. Desiree Tellez. And we are broaching the very difficult topics that I decided to merge because somehow I thought they went hand in hand all the time. But Dr. Deyes clarified substance use and trauma, what they are individually, but also clarified that they don't always go hand in hand. So um, I learned so much from her. She is such a down to earth boss babe. And um, I hope that y'all learn as much, if not more than I did. Um, on these topics separately and how they can come together, but um, also how they don't go together sometimes. And um, yeah, so she mentioned a lot of resources. Substance use, I know, can be a very difficult topic to broach, especially because it's something that impacts so many families or individuals. And so um, all of the resources that she mentioned are definitely going to be in the description. 
Most of them are national resources, so anybody in the country can access them. But because I am based out of Austin, Texas, some of the resources that I'm linking, and I, I will specify, but some of the resources I'm linking are um, Austin-based. So um, there's going to be help all around. And don't hesitate to reach out. You know, these are these are some hard things to deal with. And even if you are not the person that suffers from substance use, um, there is also Al-Anon, which is for people who are related to people who, um, suffer from substance use. And so, you know, we all need help. And if we can get the help somehow, then definitely take it as it comes. Right. So I'm going to link all of those things in the description. And, um, I really hope y'all enjoy this discussion with Dr. Desiree Theus. All right, everyone, on today's episode of Doses of Darling, we're going to be talking about trauma and substance use. This topic is something that's really near and dear to my heart, as a lot of the previous topics that we've broached already, because I actually grew up with uncles who were alcoholics um, and also did other substances or used other substances. And I never watched them use the substances, but I heard the adults talking, you know, when you're children, your, your parents or your aunts and uncles are talking about one another and whatever habits they have. And so um, just knowing, you know, like growing up in the Latino community and on my dad's side, you know, he's one of 11 kids and my mom's side, she's one of seven. And so there's a lot of, um, a lot of cultural trauma that comes from that as well, right? Like the order in which you were born and whether you were parentified and just so much that comes into trauma and substance use was that with that. Um, I've also shared on the first couple of episodes about exes that I had that were addicts as well. I mean, y'all remember the first two exes that I had in high school who were both addicted to meth. And then my longest relationship was like of seven, eight years, um, also talked about his struggle with substance use and addiction. And so um, I think that one consumed me a little bit more. Um, and then I also talked about my, um, my relationship to alcohol when it came to relationships. So, you know, just trying to figure out where the substance use comes from and from a really young age, right? Like the substance use in these two high school boyfriends that I had were what planted the seed in me to want to become a mental health therapist so that I could be able to nip that in the bud with adolescence once, you know, that career took off. And y'all remember, I took a, a detour of 11 years before I made it to this career, but I'm here now and I'm a new learner. And so, um, wanting to learn as much about it myself and then put it out to y'all as well so that we can all learn together how substance use and, and trauma kind of correlate or go hand in hand with one another. And so today we have an amazing guest with us. We have Dr. Theis. Dr. Theis is an LPC and an LCDC, which is a licensed chemical dependency counselor. She has a doctorate degree in human behavior. She is also EMDR trained therapist who utilizes um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is CBT, and also dialectical behavioral modality, so DBT. Um, Dr. Theis is also a trained restorative justice facilitator and 
she tends to incorporate restorative justices as well into her therapeutic sessions. So she's provided a number of specialized services to people dealing with really hard life experiences. So trauma being one of them, addiction, anxiety, depression, substance use, and also defiant behavior. So super impressive resume. I met Dr. Theis as part of the Women's Wellness Workshop at Mira Mira Venue um, on that Saturday that I talked about with uh, Samantha Ben. So I've already had Samantha on this podcast and she and I talked about um, I, EMDR actually. And so Dr. Theis's boss babe energy when we were at the wellness workshop is what caught my attention about her. You know, I totally stalked her on Instagram after the event because I was inspired to show up in spaces the way that she was, you know, she showed up at this event. It was super cool. I mean, she was one of the facilitators there also. And um, you inspired me for sure. And because I am in the early stages of this career and meeting women like you, it just gives me a vision of what I can become and who I can help on this journey as a healer that I've embarked on. And so I want to welcome you and thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the podcast with me. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, especially for your kind words. And that means a lot. It it does. Because, you know, sometimes, especially in this field, like, we, we do things, but we never see the long-term investment, right? You can, you help somebody, but you never hear of how it impacted or something. So it means a lot, definitely hearing that. Um, and also connecting. I'm so happy that you connected because sometimes that's such a big fear of like, we don't follow through or we don't connect just because the unknown, right? We don't know. Um, and depending upon how we're raised, sometimes that's not, that's not what we're used to growing up. So it's, it's definitely something to push ourselves out of. Yeah, so thank you. I'm happy to be here. Of course. Yeah, no, thanks again for being on. And I love that you mentioned that because I did, I did have some hesitation before I started reaching out to people because I mean, I met you before I even started the podcast. And so when I started thinking about people to have on, um, or whether I even wanted to do that, it was a huge hesitation for me because I was like, well, what if they don't want to show up? And then there's the, there's the like little fear of like, are we competition or are we collaborators? Like, you know, we can't see each other as competition because we're all helping different groups of people. And so I just, I love that you accepted and that we are now collaborating on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And that's something good to mention because I think so many people, we feel like there is competition, right? Or that's how we grow up in such a grind hustle mentality where, we're trying to prove our best, do our best all the time. Um, so I think that's something that's definitely normal. We all feel, but it's good to say it so that people know, like, you're not alone. Like, it doesn't matter how much schooling, how many degrees you got, like, you still feel it still comes or the feelings of imposter syndrome or something like that. So I'm glad yeah. that you're doing this um, and stepping <laughs> out on faith and going with it. You know, sometimes when Especially if you come, I don't know how your family upbringing is, but if you're, you're the first one doing it and breaking ground in certain things, it's trial and error. Just like going to school and pulling out them student loans and you just go with it. Like, and then, you know, however it's going to pan out, like, that's my belief. Like, as long as, you know, for me, God is at the forefront of mine, like he's going to lead it and that's it. I'm going to follow along and it's going to, it's going to happen however it needs to happen and when it needs to happen. Exactly. Yeah, no, for sure. I definitely felt that I had this calling 
11, 12 years ago, but you know, he took me on this detour and we're here now. So that's all that matters. And yeah, I, I am one of the first few people to do anything like this in my family, um, let alone get a second master's degree. And I see the littles behind me doing the same stuff too. So um, maybe I'm a role model, maybe I'm an inspiration, but um, I also try to keep mentors that I can look up to such as yourself so that I can continue breaking cycles and just, I don't know, you're just like a, a really positive example for me. So thanks. Oh, thank you so much for that. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we can get started. Um, uh, the first question that I always ask my people or the guests that are on the show is how you were called into being in the mental health profession or um, what inspired you to do it and how long you've been practicing. Yeah. Um, I want to say by accident, you know, but there are no accidents. There are, it is what it is. Um, truly growing up, I was going into law. That's where I had my idea. Um, I had just, you know, growing up, my upbringing, my family dynamics, very dysfunctional. Um, so my idea was like, I need to get into the law system to become a lawyer, to help criminal defense, right? To help people mm -hmm. that I knew um, who were affected in that way or were, who were being affected. Sorry, I feel like I got something in my eyes. Um, who were being affected. Um, and it's not that they were being affected negatively, but at this young age, that's how the system, we kind of see it, right? As, as if it is negatively, no matter whether somebody's breaking the law or, or not, that comprehension doesn't take place um, in certain, certain situations. And I was from um, East Austin before gentrification. Um, grew up in a low income home, um, you know, my grandmother's home. So it was very just the dynamics of what my reality was to what the reality outside in the world was very different. So I had this idea, I was going to go into law and praying about it. Even my undergraduate is in like business, um, business management, like, and then I was gonna, I wanted to transfer, like I was dual majoring in political science and it just shifted. Um, I had, I got pregnant with my daughter and I, I came, like, I, I always knew, knew God and knew, but I came to Christ, and right after I had her, I was a junior in college, and I just was like, you know, I need to do more. Um, it was no longer, I was no longer chasing the money. Like, I wanted to be a lawyer, because in my head, doctor and lawyer, you're going to make the bread. Um, mm -hmm. Although I know that's not true, they still struggle, too. It's not, but this idea, right, um, these assumptions that I had, so once I yeah I made this just big shift after I finished I had to finish my degree I was just too far in to to change at that point I felt like so I finished my business management degree um and counseling just kept falling in my lap social work fell into my lap and I was just like oh I, I finally found like an LPC program at a Christian university and I just applied and I did things very much living in that survival mode, I did a lot of things on the whim. Um, and what I mean by that is even when I applied to college, I applied to one college and then I applied to the Marines. And I was like, if I don't get in this one college, God, I'm ready to go to war. Like I'm, wow. I'm ready. I just, you know, that was my mentality. Like I, it was kind of like, I'm ready. I'll go serve the country. Like I, and it was very irrational, very survivor mentality um, because I felt, you know, this is a, I know I can succeed in that room. I knew I could succeed in that room. I didn't know how much I could succeed in the college room, right? Mm. Once you bring me in uh, more white spaces or more professional settings, the me slips up 
all the time. I have this talk all the time. Like, um, but so finally, anyways, fast forward once I, um, I ended up finishing my degree at Liberty University and got connected in my first, I went into was substance use. I did some work at domestic violence shelters um, and I connected with everything. That's where I think my heartstrings got pulled on to where like, okay, this is exactly where I belong because it was no longer for, you know, the external um, money, right? I'm not chasing, chasing this idea of what it is, but I'm more chasing like the impact on people's lives and helping people. And my motto is like, I try to be who I needed when I was younger. Mm, so that's yeah. a lot of what I live by decisions. I make um, partnerships that I, anything that I do, I try to, you know, leave that footprint. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing with this. I love when my guests give like little doses of themselves like that, because I get to learn so much more about you too. You know, I try to do a little bit of research here and there to include in the introduction, but it's just so awesome to hear your journey to first to hear that you came to Christ. Like I, we, my first episode, and I try to mention it every, I weave it in, in almost every single episode about um, how I'm just sending whatever message God wants me to send to whomever it is. You know, I'm not really in this for like the numbers and whatever. I just, yeah. if I reach one person with this episode or with whatever episodes I put out, that's, that's like the work that I want to do, you know, and, and it's great that, that you mentioned that you came to Christ and that this, this uh, career has been put in your life regardless, you know, and even though I could see you because of your boss, babe energy could totally see you as a boss ass Marine as well. <laughs> that would have been a super cool route, but I'm glad that, um, God placed you where you needed to be so that then you could follow this route that you were meant to follow. Let's get into substance use and trauma. Um, what inspired you to become a substance use or trauma specialist? You did mention a little bit more, a little bit earlier that um, you were kind of placed in that or how did it work? Yeah. And um, so I, I mean, I personally encountered trauma, substance use all throughout my life. Not only um, I've seen it, how it has been used negatively, I've seen it from both ends, right? Um, I've seen it where there's people in who are not only the the user but the provider. So I've seen all aspects of just the how substances can impact a society, how it impacts a family, how it just impacts an individual. Um, it impacts who we are, who we think we are, and not only that, but just the battle that it is. I think really when I came to Christ, I figured like, yeah, this is a physical battle that people, but it's also a very spiritual battle. So mm -hmm. when I, I finished, um, I did some work with different students, like I said, in, and I also did work with, in a shelter. And then I went into residential treatment center work. So I worked with adolescents in residential centers and I just saw a lot of snippets of like, man, I remember this. I remember this. Like, not that they're an addict. It's not like I could really relate in that transference of like, no, I remember being that kid. And I remember bonding over alcohol when somebody died. I remember throwing alcohol on the floor. Like that's something that growing up in the hood, that is normal. Like it's not. Um, so these certain things that I felt like I could, I could relate to, I could understand, especially when you look at things culturally, um, when I had Hispanic clients come in or who, you know, it was kind of like, well, we drink at every party. And if you don't drink, then you're made fun of, or you, so understanding these different dynamics, um, 
that's what really like got me into the substance use working at the residential center and then just started integrating it in everywhere because no matter if somebody is using somebody is out of everybody you know somebody is affected by substance use in their life and that's on, whether they admit it or not right because mm-hmm. that's something that i feel is still very taboo to even talk about which is what like even the fact that you have an issue with substance use or that you know somebody who I mean, sometimes in a relationship, if your partner is struggling, you're less mm-hmm. likely to tell your family because you can forgive your partner, but your family, especially, you know, different communities, we react different, different families are different. My family, they're going to bring it up five years from now. I'll remember when, and it's, you know, you may forget, you want to move past. So a lot mm-hmm. of times we stay, we stay in these secrets. We stay in like not reaching help. That's one way, but also it's taboo with like work that's the biggest thing. A lot of people fear that, and it's just not knowing, not knowing your rights, not knowing what is out there for you, not knowing you can get free treatment, um, which leaves people just like in denial of like how big this issue is. I'm not understanding that there's help for them in the fear of protection for, for their family, um, fear and protection for themselves as well. Yeah. So I think really like working at the residential center is what brought it to where I started integrating it into a lot of work. Um, Cause I just think it can be addiction is something that goes beyond substances. We can mm-hmm. all struggle with an addiction, whether it's social media, what it's just, if we want to call it out or not. Um, and if we want to excuse it, we could justify it, but it's when something is taking a forefront in our life or affecting our day to day. Well, so actually that this question is a little further down the line, but um, you just gave an answer, I think for it, right. Is at what point, is substance use considered a disorder or disease? Because you mentioned the fact that um, people don't mention it because sometimes they don't even think it's a problem, right? Well, just having a beer or two before bed every night, but it's every night and you don't realize that it's necessary for you, right? So could you give us that, that definition or like when it is considered something that's a disorder or disease? Yeah, I mean, when you go into a treatment center, like we, they'll do, you know, a biopsychosocial like assessment and seeing how much do you drink, how often, when. I would really say for anybody who's just like concerned, right? Not maybe you don't have insurance, maybe you can't go get an assessment. Um, if you stop this substance and you notice that your body is having effects to it, you're experiencing headaches, you're experiencing tremors, you're kind of twitching, like your hands may be shaking or that's telling you like your body has become dependent on something outside of it. Your body, we were created with, you know, everything that we need. This is outside of anybody. I mean, if you're needing insulin, if you're needing something to live that you've been prescribed, this is completely outside of that, just so it doesn't get taken out of context. But if you are taking a substance and it is getting to that point to where your body has become dependent, your body's going to tell you, your body's going to talk to you in those ways. It's going to start reacting. Um, and many times if with, with alcohol, we'll use to make those symptoms go away. Mm-hmm. Or it may not even be the physical symptoms where your body's talking, but your body may be talking through like what you're experiencing emotionally, right? Because even when we experience the, our somatic symptoms that come out, when we're feeling a lot of grief, we're feeling anger, our body, we're going to feel it in our chest, you're going to feel. So even if you notice you stop drinking and you're feeling that, a lot of times that's where drinking or that's where, you know, we'll use marijuana, we'll use meth, we'll use these different substances because it's like, no, nah, I need to numb that. Something's coming up, 
and it needs to go away because we don't know how to, a lot of times in these situations, people weren't taught how to regulate themselves. And it's scary, you know, when we're not taught how to deal with these big emotions, it gets scary because the fear of like, what could happen? Um, so that's why, that's where sometimes it's very common that we see like functional alcoholics. We see people who are utilizing substances and they're functional. And these are not like, I don't want the assumption to be that these are people who don't have careers. These are people who, you know, are what, what we, we could say in prison or these are people. No, these are, yes, some of those people as well, but these are people like you and I, doctors, lawyers, like these are people who have careers and who there's ways of just numbing the reality of what they deal with. They're doing very great things, but it's also very hard, very intense things. Um, and sometimes these things can happen as well from things that were prescribed to actually help us where our body becomes dependent. Um, I think that was a, a question too, but like substance use just overtakes us to where it's not something that you, sometimes you're just too far in, right? And it's not that something tells you like, oh, to try this or pushes you. Sometimes trauma pushes you, but sometimes it's just exploration. You try something and you're hooked from that one instance. Um, your body's trying to meet that reward system again and again. Yeah, that. so the answer to that question reminds me of like what I said in the intro, how I've had, I had or grew up with uncles who were, drunk almost all the time um, and on both sides of the family. So it's not, you know, it's not like it just happened with one uncle. It was like, I had several uncles on, on either side of the family. And I think um, for sure with them, it had to do with trauma. But then I think back to my exes who were in high school and their substance of choice was um, meth. And they were really young when they started, you know, marijuana was a gateway drug for them because that's, that's what they did initially. And then, and then they went all the way to meth and uh, other substances, I imagine later on in their lives. So um, I get, yeah, to clarify, I guess trauma doesn't always cause substance use or addiction. Yeah. And it, it can play a big part. Um but there's also, I don't know if you want to go into that now or you want to. No, you, you can. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, I do think so. That's one thing um, where I think I when I approach this, I approach it from an integrative perspective where I don't I don't separate the trauma and the substance use. A lot of times in treatment, it's very rare that you find dual diagnosis programs. Mm. Most of the time you go in and they're focusing just on your substance use or they're going to focus just on your, your behavioral health, your trauma. And that's something that is, is hard because if you're just tackling one, once the other one comes back, they're just coinciding. They're playing ping pong with each other. Like you got to take the balls away from both and tackle both of them, which sometimes it can, it can be confusing because the work overlaps, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the symptoms may overlap to where it's kind of like, okay, is this alcohol or is this um, mental health? Like what's happening throughout the body? Um, but I think with trauma, when people experience trauma, it definitely can have that generational impact of how that's going to affect the body and what that looks like. And I think that's something for, for people to remember is like, not only is it, is it the trauma that's happening, but it's also the generation, like when we think of generational curses, right? I integrate the Christian perspective throughout my therapy. So when I think of generational curses, like 
I see this person not only battling physically, emotionally, but they're battling spiritually as well. Um, and that's where sometimes with, I know in my family, like alcohol is something that was normalized throughout generations. So it's like to be, to be that one that, you know, or somebody that in the family that breaks that, it's kind of like, it's on you. Now you're walking on new territory. Um, and even with trauma, that when that looks different to people, something mean you could experience the same situation, but it can affect us differently. Whereas it may feel traumatic to you, but I may be like, ah, oh, that's, you know, that happened to me last year. Um, and that's something that a lot of, a lot of things, especially one thing I, I critique a lot is the ACEs, um, which is heavily used a lot, the ACEs, but the ACEs does not look at the other side of like, yeah, I may have went through all this shit, but I had a, a strong grandmother, you know, I had a strong, my mom was really strong, like just led this with strength to where the resilience in me, it doesn't take into consideration the resilience. Um, so that's where it, that's something to, to take into account as well. Like, yes, we can go through stuff, we've been through stuff, but not forgetting like the strength that came through that, you know what I mean? And what, what built us for what we went through, because it's easy to get caught up in, I think in the trauma and those responses, mm. the symptoms. Yeah. So it's a case by case basis, I imagine then, because some people do go through all of these childhood adverse experiences, which was another question on here. I love that you're just hitting upon them so organically. Um, a lot of people do go through all these childhood adverse experiences, but there's no resilience built. But then they're and you know, they're they struggle even more or they victimize themselves. And there's a lot of trauma there that needs to be unpacked, um, maybe not even acknowledged. But on the other end, I, I do love that you mentioned that like, yeah, my mom was a badass and she got us through all of the shit that we went through. Um, and that made me stronger or that much more stronger because I watched her go through all of this crap, too. And we went to get we went alongside it or we went through it together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think one thing that um, I mean, I've noticed in my own life is like the resilience, like no matter what you have gone through, there is some form of resilience that is created. No matter how hard things are, how hard they seem, there is some form of resilience that you are still here today. Um, because everything, that, and I know this is pretty cliche, right? Like what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And sometimes it does feel like we die through these experiences. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it does feel, but there's also like, for me, spiritually, like a rebirth in that, like, okay, I'm, I'm through this. Like, I'm, mm -hmm. how do we die? And that's the biggest thing as a Christian. It's like, how do we die to our old self? But I still want to remember, I still want to hold on to my trauma because that became a part of my identity. I can't get, I can give everything to Christ, but if I give you that, then what, where am I now? Because that's how I've learned how to survive because of this trauma. Um, so that's something that I think therapy helps to realize that like, even though you process through this and you're no longer responsive to it, that doesn't mean you're like letting go and going to forget it. Cause I think that's the body's fears. We're going to forget how to survive anymore. But the only thing that we're doing is processing to where we're not reactive in this constant survival state, but we still have these same values. We still have these same, you know, the same resilience factors. Um, it's just a matter of allow, like our mind understanding that. Yeah. So your body's not always in fight or flight mode using these coping mechanisms that you had to develop along the way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. 
Yeah. So we're mentioning the word trauma a lot. And I know that since 2020, a lot of um, a lot of people have been throwing around the word trauma on social media. And, you know, the pandemic put mental health on the spotlight after having been socially distanced or let's be real, like isolated from people because we, you know, we're still doing Zoom stuff. And um, can you give us a definition for what is considered trauma in the mental health community? Yeah, I mean, trauma is really anything adverse that you experience, right? Anything that is a difficult experience for you, a difficult situation that you encounter. Um, now there's there's big T's and there's little T's. There's something you can encounter that's small and then there's something that you can encounter like a death or something that is much larger. The effects of it are determined, like that's where we have PTSD come in and different things on how long the, the effects of the trauma you experience last. There's some people who, especially if you have been through a lot of trauma, sometimes you become so desensitized to things um, to where it's no longer affecting you in that same way. But that doesn't mean that you're not affected by it. Um, and just from, I mean, my own personal experience growing up, like going through, I was in a, a drive by in high school and one of my best friends was murdered and witnessing that and seeing it but when you start to talk about things and you become so desensitized to like I can tell the story and it's just, but that's after like trials and all of these things right and recounting and saying it so many times that like you learn to desensitize the emotions from it and that's something that growing up in the hood that's normal people die people see things and they're so desensitized to it but that doesn't mean that the trauma isn't there that doesn't mean that when we start doing some deep internal work, some of these emotions are going to come up and some of these things are going to going to come up that have never been there. Um, and especially after doing some of that work, you may notice like I'm able to talk about that and I'm not crying anymore. I'm able to like that's where healing, you know, healing has taken place. Like your body is no longer becoming reactive. Um, so trauma does look different. I would keep in mind like there's a big T, there's a little T. Um, let's see, like I said earlier, we can all experience like the same situation, but we're affected differently. And a lot of that is connected to like perception of what happened, our perception and how we internalize that. Because um, during that fight, flight or freeze, we also have some, you know, sometimes when people experience trauma, they black out, they don't remember nothing. They disassociate from the entire event. Some people can remember every single detail and feel it in their body and smell exactly what they experience. Um, so it's a very broad range of, of what that looks like. And I would say it's very easy to get stuck into the, the loop of re-traumatization. And that's something mm -hmm. that I think throughout my practice that I try, I try to steer away from because it's just a, when we're going to therapy, we're seeking this healing. It's like, I know that I had this trauma and I need to heal from it. And but let's say you're no longer having these somatic experience where you're not affected. Um, your body's not affected by it, right? You're not having nightmares. You're not having this. But we keep talking about the event and we keep having you relive it. We're re-traumatizing you and having you re-go through that when the work has already been done. And that's something that just like this grind culture that happens, I would say that's something that's been real big of the healing, healing and what does it look like? And when is it enough healing? Like not so much when is it enough healing, but how do we learn to put things down and accept like sometimes we're not going to get the closure that we have envisioned, right? But it's accept accepting where that's at. Um, 
which that can, I feel like the re-traumatization can be dangerous. Um, and then as I mentioned earlier, like how trauma becomes a part of our identity and that fear um, as far as like letting stuff go. And it's, it's hard because I, I hear you how you're saying like in 2020, like trauma is just thrown around and there's a lot of words that have been just like thrown around and it's like, you know, oh, everybody's a narcissist or you're a, you know, and it's like, yeah. And, and it's good that the information's coming out. It's good that the awareness is happening, but it's very important to make sure that like it's being diagnosed by a professional. It's being diagnosed because it's easy for us to you know, we can, we can finesse anything, how it can be subjective and somebody, you know, just in a conversation, we can finesse things to manipulate it. And you mentioned um, like victim mentality, I believe, right? You mentioned that earlier. And sometimes I, I have a, like my belief, like that's a lot connected when that becomes a part of our identity. If you're telling me to put that down or you're telling me to let that go, it's kind of like, who am I now? Um, but to somebody who's already healed from it, it's like, you just want to be the victim or you just want to, like, you want to stay stuck in that. Um, but their specific story can be very different on what, you know, just how their brain is processing it. So I think the biggest thing is like us just being able to give grace and understanding, even though we may not agree, it's okay to disagree. Like there's been many times where it's like, okay, like, you know, we experienced the same thing, but it wasn't that bad. Um, but when we sit there and we exchange stories, I'm like, oh, I can see why why this is very bad to you because you grew up in a what's considered normal. You grew up in a normal household. You grew up in, where when you grow up in dysfunction and, you know, there's there's a little more tolerance on dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, so understanding that as I got older and in the professional settings, it kind of made a little more sense to where let me not pass that judgment on you know, somebody's trauma or comparing, because sometimes we tend to do that, especially with substance use. That's a big thing. Um, Glorifying. It could be like, you went through one thing. Oh, I went through this bigger thing. Let me tell you about this. Um, And it's going to happen. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned so much amazing stuff in this, in this (laughs) little time frame, but I want to backtrack it a little bit to um, how you mentioned that there's re-traumatization that can occur too when you're bringing stuff to therapy. How would one who is in therapy kind of come to the realization of, yeah, I went through this really traumatic experience, um, so I don't really need to mention it in therapy anymore because it's no longer affecting me. Like, What if in your mind it's something that you really have to let out because it's such a huge trauma but you're not realizing or you're not connecting the dots that it's not really affecting your life anymore i think um transparency with a therapist is great because as a therapist we're trained to like extract right especially when you first start therapy we're going to extract everything that you give just so that we get a clear like understanding of what's going on and sometimes what may be like when we think of how dysregulation happens, right? Or how someone's body's affected to a therapist, we could be interpreting it as like, oh, this seems like this would be highly effective. But that's where that being able to answer, like not answer, but being able to speak and use your voice as far as saying like, no, I'm actually not affected by that. Um, and sometimes that can be scary as far as going in these a professional setting and feeling like with the doctor, being able to be, just straight up with them, you know, being real, being, and that sometimes is scary, especially like when 
think of it like a doctor. You go see a doctor and they tell you, hey, this is wrong with you. And even though you haven't been feeling that, it's like, okay, that's what's wrong with me. Um, so it's very, we just kind of take it as like, that is true. So, and that's something that it's hard. I know this, I'm speaking from my own personal experience. Like it's hard to use your voice in those settings. And I've seen that transfer into like therapy settings to where if I ask something and I'll tell them like, hey, we're in a boat, like we're in the waters, but you're the captain, like you're driving this. If there's ever something that it's like, I don't want to talk about that. I don't, I give them the autonomy to respect that because even if we're processing trauma and we're going through stuff and you're having an important birthday dinner tonight, we've already opened up all this. Like I like to be, be aware of everything the client's experiencing because then I'm opening all this stuff up in the morning they're going to be exhausted and they're probably not going to be able to enjoy that night um mm -hmm. so being able to tell your therapist all of that like hey I have something this isn't a good day to work through and sometimes we got to be aware because that could be avoidance like your therapist will challenge you like is it you avoiding or is that true so um but with the re-traumatization really asking um really saying like well I guess noticing your body like are you affected? Are these memories still coming up? Is it affecting your work? Is it affecting your sleep, your, your eating, anything like that? If all of those answers are no, then most likely that is something that yes, it happened to you. And that's a part of your story, but it's not your identity. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And when we realize that shift, it's like, I can carry that as my story. And it's not something that I need to fully process through. Um, and sometimes I, I'll notice that it can come up to where they're making the connection, but that doesn't mean they're fully processing. It's okay to make the connection still and us not go deep, but being aware of the re-traumatization, if you feel like you're no longer affected by something and as a therapist, I'm thinking, hey, this is a, you know, this is probably something she, she needs to process in depth. When I start picking and we start going deeper and deeper, that re-traumatization can happen to where now we're putting your body back in those feelings. We're putting your body back in those spaces and back in those memories. Um, so I think that's, that's important to be aware of and even sharing that with your therapist. Like, hey, now that we're talking about this, I'm having nightmares, I'm having, and your therapist should be able to, you know, drive the conversations or drive your treatment plan forward from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love that you mentioned the transparency piece also because, um, especially in the Latino community, right? No sacamos los trapitos sucios al aire con nadie. So like, first of all, getting us into therapy is like a huge feat. But then once we're there, it's like, well, I don't know this person. Why am I going to tell them every single thing? And so we like reserve some things because of shame. So like, there's a lot of vergüenza that goes behind yeah. it or like, no conozco esta persona. Why am I going to tell? It's yeah. so many different little things where, um, we, we have to be totally transparent if we really want to do the deep work of healing and then getting out of whatever traumas that we've gotten so that we can become the best version of ourselves. So thank you for mentioning that transparency piece. I think it's really, really important for anybody, regardless of the culture that you're coming from, to be open. And, you know, we're as therapists, we're not here to judge anything that you've been through in your life or that you've done. It's we're just there to help you work through your shit so that you can heal mm -hmm. and become the ideal version of you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, definitely. That's good. That's good. And yeah. I think it, one thing I, I do for myself is I ask myself like, okay, is this me 
why am I feeling why am I feeling unsafe because a lot of that goes to us feeling unsafe you know so even just asking yourself like what is it about this situation sometimes it could be the therapist so if, if you notice that like every time you're meeting with this person your body is just cringing or that's probably not a good fit for you and that's okay like your therapist feelings should not get hurt and if they do then that's it's good you kind of got away <laughs> you should be able to have that conversation and do that and even yeah. practicing sometimes at home like what you're gonna say yeah yeah sometimes therapists remind you of your parents or people in your life that didn't make you feel safe and it's completely fine to to feel that way yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So let's go. Uh, we went through the trauma. Now we want to like merge them together and with substance use. Have you in your work noticed if there's any biological sex differences in how trauma impacts whether one becomes addicted to a substance or not? Yeah. Um, so I definitely believe they go hand in hand. Um, you know, I, I do believe there's a difference and especially when we consider like testosterone, we consider estrogen like throughout the body. Also body composition from men to women, it is, you know, substances are going to affect us differently. That's just the reality. Um, and when I integrate, like, I guess the, when we think of like biological sex differences on how the trauma impacts us, even when we think of experiences, right? We think of two siblings and they're going to, they can go through something traumatic, a boy and a girl, and they're going to process that. They're going to hold that in. Their body's going to hold that in a different way. And sometimes it may be, it's very common for like males to disassociate through that. It's very common in therapy that we, like there's, even with childhood experiences, maybe they don't remember a lot of their childhood. They've dissociated, you know, they've suppressed a lot of the, the trauma that's happened. So they're not affected to that extent. So once you start mm -hmm. doing some more of that deep work, a lot of that stuff comes up to the surface. Mm -hmm. um, but with the substance use, are you wondering like on the effects that it has with them, does it have effects on them using or is it like more so with when they use the, the substance? So my question is if there's a difference between whether trauma would lead other would lead either biological sex to substance use more than the other one. Mm, okay. Um, mm, so that's, that's a little, that's a little tricky, right? Cause we have mm. everything is subjective. So there are, you know, researchers who believe, who believe that, right. And we always hear like marijuana is a gateway drug, like you use marijuana and you're going to use everything. Um, that's what we, I mean, we've just been taught even throughout, throughout our studies. But I do think the experiences of trauma, as we process them differently, sometimes substances are used to, to mask those. They're used to suppress them. They're used so that someone can function in their day-to-day. -day. That's where we have a lot of functional users, right? We have people who go to work, they live a normal life, but they heavily use. Um, when I integrate my beliefs, um, I integrate that in there. I believe that there's a stronghold component that must be taken into consideration. So when there's generations and generations before you who have struggled with a substance use, who have struggled with these strongholds of substance use, like the enemy doesn't want you to be the first one to not use. The enemy doesn't want that. So the trauma that you've experienced through generations and generations plays upon that as well and the substance use. But can I say like one 
there's been research that I'm sure it's been subjective, but in my personal opinion, do I believe that a traumatic incident is can push you into like using a substance? It can, but in the right environmental setting, right? Like if you go through something and you're in a remote area, you're not going to say like, hey, I need to use, I need to use marijuana right now. I need it. Like your body is not going to react that way. Your body is not going to desire this unless you've utilized a substance before. Your body knows, hey, when we need to, we need to get out of reality. This is where we go. But if you've never used that, I don't believe. And this this goes contrary. Like I said, somebody can argue this because there is the genetical component that researchers have found, right? That there's like um there's different chromosomes or neural circuits that are in the brain that are believed to like make one at higher risk for addiction but we also have to take into consideration that's only taking on one piece that's not saying is there some something that can combat that if you have a loving grandma does that mean you're not at higher risk no more like so that's where when we see these things we have to be very subjective and like they can go different ways same thing with the aces um you know, the ACEs can say, hey, if you score at a high level here, you're a thousand percent more likely to commit suicide or you're this much. And the reality is, is like maybe you didn't even experience that. You you checked off every box, but you didn't experience that. You know, you had a loving grandmother. I keep using my grandma because I, I love my grandma. She was a good, mm-hmm. important piece in my life. But they don't take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. So it leaves a lot of that confusion left open, I think you know, for us to, to not know and to place these kind of labels on ourselves to where like, well, I'm more likely for this. And when we feel that that's what we're destined to, a lot of times we're more likely to give it, give it a chance or give it a try. Um, And sometimes it happens where somebody just uses, you know, they try something one time and their body is just hooked from what Mm -hmm. it does, what it releases that, that reward that it, you know, sends off to the brain dopamine that's released like they're they're wanting that that reward system again and their brain is desiring those same feelings they'll try again they'll use a substance again it doesn't activate that same the same reward system is activated but it's kind of like that first time you use your brain is like a bell rings this high right like your sensation is so high when you use again it's never going to go this high but your body is always like, no, 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 no. Like I needed a little, like we are wanting to reach that same level of euphoria. Like we're wanting to reach that same level of ecstasy. That's probably a better word. And that's where the continuous use comes in to where then now your body becomes dependent on it. Um, and I know a question here is like, is it is it a, a disease? I believe that substance use is a disease. That's something else that people can be subjective upon to where it's more of a choice. Um, but I think there's fine lines to where when the body is dependent and you see somebody, you know, withdrawing, somebody detoxing to where they can go into cardiac arrest because their body is detoxing so bad. Um, that's where you you understand like there's become it's not it's no longer a choice. And it does, it's it's hard, right, because it leads up in a choice. It's your first choice on to take that hit or not. But the effects of it, I think, are a little they're a little more enhanced and different on what, what, um, substances do actually to the brain. Mm. I gave you a lot. So I hope I covered your question. You covered, yes, you covered the question and beyond. Um, so I guess let's go into the therapy room now with substance use. What I'm going to 
mix the next three questions together because I think they're reworded in and they all go one with the other. So what is the work that you do in addressing substance use in your therapy session to help then change or shift the narrative in somebody's life? Like what modalities work best whenever, I mean, in your therapy yeah, room um, or office? Yeah, so I integrate a little bit, a lot of, I shouldn't say a little bit, because I integrate a lot of different things like motivational interviewing, some strength-based um, DBT work, also just regular talk therapy, but also integrating some of that EMDR whenever I can. But I truly feel like it's not, it's not. I can't even take credit for anything because it's the work of, the, especially with substance use, it's the work of the client um, on where they're at and, and what their capacity, what they can do. And I think that's the big, like, misunderstanding, which I I um, I would say that I've felt before, like, with family members, like, why can't they just get sober for me? Like, where it connects to, like, what is, why am I not, I don't understand how you can't put your family first. But it's, it's deeper than that, right? When we talk about the effects that it has on the body, when we talk about the brain, um, and when individuals make that decision, a lot of times we do see relapses that happen. We do see those are a part of the process. This is not something that some people can go cold turkey and they do. So it, it can happen. It is possible, but it's also situation. Um, everybody has different situations that they're, they're encountering, whether it's the family dynamics, workplace dynamics, and especially the environment. Maybe they want to get sober, but the people they live with provide it. So it's hard to get sober. Um, so throughout therapy, it's really meeting them where they're at. I figure out like what is not figure out, but ask them about like what are the environmental impacts? What are who's your support system? And a lot of times it's hard when you don't have any support system um, because we all like when we're working towards a goal, that support system helps us to to keep pushing us. So when you don't, that's where these AA groups um, celebrate recovery. These different groups like that they become an important aspect. And I will integrate some of the work that they do throughout AA as well. When, and not that I'm I'm taking on their sponsor lead or anything, but if some of that work they need to process further in depth, you know, this is a safe space where they can do that. Or if they're noticing some triggers are happening through that, um, I open that up as well. But I would say it's all on an individualized approach, especially when you think of what level you're at. If you're coming in for just regular therapy or if I'm seeing you in a residential center um, or for like inpatient groups, they look very different on what your needs are. Okay. Um, I know a lot of people who say substance use work is very difficult because of how many times people relapse. Um, what message do you have for on both ends of the spectrum or on either side, right? For people who suffer from substance use so that they don't become discouraged on their journey, as well as people who do work in these environments who have to provide the mental health services for people who will tend to relapse every once in a while? Mm -hmm. I think um, as somebody who is entering treatment, I would definitely say like, yeah, it's hard. It's going to happen. Um, anybody who sits here and can tell you like a relapse is not going to happen or a lapse is not going to happen that's just not being realistic. You know, I've had clients who sometimes it happened on accident, you know, somebody poured them wine and they didn't even know they had one. Like, 
so there's these things that like they can happen and they can stumble you but like you keep going you figure out like what what can I control in this moment and every day is a new day every hour is a new hour um I think that's the biggest thing that that keeps can keep people in this cycle is like the shame that comes with it feeling like there's nowhere to go because there's just so much shame on what we've done in the past or even how we're handling it but just taking that taking that step you know keep putting one foot in front of the other even if you fall just keep putting one foot in front of the other um you know and when you go like if you go to seek treatment what's the worst that that could happen like you get sober you know that's the way I always see it um I saw that at a quote when I worked at at Phoenix House like I saw that on a quote on a wall that a kid said and I'm just like you know what that's right like what it, I mean, obviously, like when we get technical, right, I have to be considerate of like we're on social media. So just making sure nothing is taken out of context. Yes, when we think of what's the worst, you, somebody could die um, because the reality is, is residential centers aren't 100 percent safe either. Right. You're going somewhere where you meet somebody where they have access to substances or they're the you know, sometimes we they're the plug and they're, they there's connections. So. I do want to be sure that like I'm hidden on the reality of what the world is, but also being able to just tell somebody to like have grace with yourself and just really, when you see, you make that change on, you want to do it for you. That's when real change happens because we can want to do things for everyone else so much, so much, but there's too many people that we want to please at once. But when we want to please ourselves, the, the game changes is different. Um, And as far as like, with you you said as far as therapists thinking like the work is too hard I think I noticed early in my career on like when that that savior mentality comes in when I'm doing too much of the work and I notice like oh I'm trying to pull all this information and you're not really even working with I'm not doing my part as a therapist I'm trying to play that savior role where like I'm going to help you get sober I can't do that I can walk Mm -hmm. this journey with you on the side of you but I can't walk in front of you. And, you know, I can't walk behind you. Like I can, I can walk on the side of you until, until you're ready, then I can walk behind you. And that's where that maintenance stage comes in. You may have clients come in later to see you once a year, every six months. Um, but I would definitely, I always say like heart check, I'll heart check myself and see like, where's my heart in it? Like, why do I want to know this? Or why am I pushing so much? Because sometimes we'll have a transference that we're not even aware of. Maybe this person reminds you of your brother who drank or who used. And there's this transference of like, I just, if you just did this, right? But it's very important when we're feeling that way to just like drop it, like drop it all and see like, what is the client needing? Um, Because ultimately our care should be person focused around the client, you know? So really dropping that and being able to heart check ourselves and, I think it's just, it goes with a lot of humbling, like we're not God. And when we try to have that savior mentality, that's where we think we're the ones healing them. And the clients hold the power. They're doing the healing. They're doing the inner work. We're just kind of helping provide that space and guiding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're just shedding little lights on things that need to yeah. be fixed and that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I want to step into substance use and the Latino community or the Latinx community. Um, I wonder if you see any, any correlation, excuse me, 
between substance use and machismo, if at all? Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, I would say more like, I think they go hand in hand on like societal expectations, because when you think of, even when you think of a machismo, right, what you think of, it's these expectations that are placed on men, these, there's strong and just like, you know, like, I don't, I don't know, I can't, I'm like comparing to machismo with my own family, but it's like, you know, we just kind of like, like they know everything and it's just, and that's not the reality, right? Um, when we think of things, but it's just like these men that we see them and the respect, the, like these, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it with words. Um, but I do think that's more societal expectations that I'm putting on these men. It's not mm -hmm. something that these men woke up and said like, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to be machismo, but it's something that's expected. So like they, these shoes that are placed that like they're feeling, they, sometimes they may feel they have to feel them. And a lot of times I think in the Latino community, we see like men as the providers, men at home or <clears throat> women work. A lot of that is shifting now, right? We see a lot of the gender roles shifting and stuff, but there's still these, we have to think when we think of generations, there's still these, um, strongholds of like this is how it should be this is what should happen and I think even with substance use when we think I keep comparing alcohol but it could be anyone um, I think alcohol is the main one that I see like you see it at at parties no matter what kind of party it is right alcohol is there um, and it's just drinking it's more of a social thing it's more of a bonding thing that is utilized um, and a lot of times it's I'm thinking like, you know, with my, my grandfather, like worked all week, but then on the weekend he would drink. And it's not that he was a belligerent drunk, not that he was abusive, not. So when you really look at it, it's like, okay, what harm is truly, what harm is being caused externally, but it's more of the harm internally that he was probably unaware of. Um, so I do think like hmm. gender roles placed in the Latino community make a difference on that, on the expectations that we have of each other. I honestly think like sometimes we are our worst enemy. Like we do this, we have these expectations and these gender roles that are set upon ourselves that it's hard to break it, right? It's hard to decolonize that and see it from a different lens when we don't even know what what does that look like um, and what does that feel like? And that's where sometimes, I mean, when there's a guy, let's say on the outside externally, he, he seems like machismo, right? He seems, but let's say he, doesn't come off that way right maybe he's more feminine it's very like different on like understanding but it's because these assumptions are being placed on someone based on how they look or how we expect them to act um a lot of times in the family well I'm I'm speaking for my own family um being like you know like the men it was assumed that they should work hard they should do these certain things whereas the women like would clean up after the man or serve the food or and that's something that I've noticed like in my own life I work and but I'm still like serving my husband first and I'm like why am I doing this like so it's these things that subconsciously like we pick up on that we don't understand how to really break them um and even the whole machismo when we think of machismo right the we, it just thinks of these things that these assumptions that are placed um but I feel like that's really difficult for me to, I would really like to hear like a man's perspective on that, on what that feels like having to be placed with this standard, right? Of like, what is a machismo or how tough are you? How tough can you be? Um, 
And how do you truly feel that you're living up to that? Because I've noticed that throughout therapy, I've seen like, especially with Latino men, um, even in my own family, it's like those expectations that we place on, on the men travel throughout, even in their own family, where the feelings of being a provider. So if they come up short from anything, then that it's very hard for them to find their identity sometimes because they've placed it so much on these ex- like societal expectations. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that made sense. And then I know it kind of went, okay. No, no, yeah, it, it made perfect sense. Um, I guess the, the next question I have is how often have you seen substance show up in your therapy office as a result of intergenerational trauma from like the Latino perspective? Oh yeah, um, I mean, a lot a lot based on just like what is normal like sometimes I think it's and I don't want to see I'm I want to be very clear on how I'm saying this too because I don't want to make the assumption that all Latinos are when I'm saying Latinos all Latinos are Latinos right I am I am Chicana I was raised in East Austin I was raised different so we when I speak on that or I speak I'm speaking from my own personal experience um because I'm sure if I was first gen here, my experience would be a little different on what that looked like. Um, so from my experience on what what I encountered, I would definitely say that there is a correlation from substance use and the gender roles, um, just based on like generation, well, you mentioned intergenerational trauma, like, like I mentioned with those strongholds. In my family, there was alcohol use throughout the generations to where it finally came to, you know, like it's a problem. and. I think my mom was the one who noticed like, hey, this isn't like, and she stopped. And then it kind of passed on to like, I'm not saying that I have never drank or anything, but it's to where she became aware of like, what are triggers? She became aware of like her boundaries of how much consumption can she use to where it was. And that's the thing, like people don't understand that you don't have to get rid of, so like completely be sobriety, so sober. Some people do, but not everyone. And that's where it's more about learning like, okay, what are those triggers for you to where it takes you out of your cognitive ability to function um, Mm -hmm. to where you are out of control? That's where the danger zones come in for people. But I think a lot of it is connected to just the generational trauma that we've experienced, those strongholds that have been placed on our family and the unknowing on how to how do we walk through new ground? Like, how do we break these things? Um, How do we function without these coping skills that have been used? Because sometimes substances become such a coping skill that they're passed on through generations, right? Mm -hmm. We see smoking marijuana can be used as one where if the parents smoke, they smoke in the house around the kids. So once the kids are not even of age, but when they can, you know, they're a teen, they may start smoking with them. And it's not so much that it's not seen as a negative thing in that household. It's not seen. And I think being able to understand the, I don't even know if it would be cultural differences or just differences within every family dynamic, no matter your race, no matter, you know, we're all raised different in the expectations and it's having a safe person to be able to say like, Hey, I know that's normal in your family, but that's not healthy. Um, Mm -hmm. That can be harmful. And I did, I did find something that was interesting where it talked about how like the assimilation that happens like for families that come from Mexico and are living here and working in the United States, like raising their family, speaking a new language, um, 
even the the education like and just to where they assimilate like the acculturation to like alcohol consumption and that Mm. being normalized or that being expected after a hard day's work so Mm -hmm. I was interested to like see how I'm pretty sure that that has some sort of effect because that's traumatic in its excuse me that's traumatic in itself right like going to a different country and I'm not even I can't even say like I know but what what that looks like on the experiences to get here like I can't mm-hmm. even say that I relate to that because I've never done that but I can only imagine like the trauma that comes from that and the yeah. undisclosed trauma because like you mentioned a lot of that's not talked about in the community and especially out of fear like if if they do share these these secrets or they do share what happened what could happen then to them um so I thought that that was pretty like interesting to hear because I think that that's something that should kind of be at the forefront when we think of like the Latino community, kind of how does that affect like, right, us assimilating to what American standards are, what that looks like. Yeah. So you're saying then that, um, so assimilation and acculturation are two different things. Acculturation is um, you're grasping things from the American culture, but still keeping things from whatever home country you came in. And assimilation means for the most part, you're leaving behind your culture, which happens more with the further generations than it does with the immigrants. Um, but yeah, you're you're basically just taking on the American culture once you're here and then releasing whatever comes with the culture that you came from or emigrated from with. And um, so just to clarify, you're saying that people who migrate into the United States, they're adapting this new, um, uh, they're adapting this like mentality of, I'm just drinking a beer to like wind down from the day from the United States. Well, and that's the thing. Um, thank you for clarifying on the assimilation. I knew I used those interchangeably. Um, that's the thing of like, I, I didn't do, I mean, this isn't my field of expertise as far as on that, but I'm thinking like, I'm pretty sure that that has something to do with like the, the expectations, right? Or what does that look like? I don't know. I mean, that was something in my family that being my grandpa, when he, you know, he was here and his family came from Mexico and that was something that he did, like it was seen as normal. And I, was that something that was just seen as like an expectation? Is that something that would happen back home? I mean, that's where I think there's a big gap in what does that look like? Has mm-hmm. that just been, is that American standard? Cause I feel like that is what's kind of known, right? Like you see these beer commercials and they're relaxing and they're but I couldn't say, like, I don't know if that's something that is standard throughout all practices, but I just found that in an article that I thought that was like, hmm, that's interesting. Like if that, I don't know, like if that does imp- impact their alcohol consumption in any way. Yeah, that would be a really good study to run if it hasn't already been researched is like in other Latin American countries, because a lot of the immigrants that we're seeing, at least here in Texas now, are mostly Central Americans, along with Mexican immigrants. So it would be really interesting to do those studies and find out what the lifestyle is like and if substance use or alcohol consumption, if we want to just stick to that, is a norm in those countries, or if it's something that was learned here and then became part of the acculturation or assimilation process. That's super cool. Thanks for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah for sure um do you have any examples or stories success story of someone that you worked with 
in session that was able to overcome their substance use that was related to some traumatic event in their life or events plural yeah um not to i don't ever just out of confidentiality like i don't connect to any any of my clients but i would say probably just the story of my mom um and i think just the the fact of like how alcohol had impacted her throughout my childhood and what i saw throughout that um the dysfunction that it caused <clears throat> and just how like i mentioned once she she learned you know she went through her own process of healing and treatment and like it just impacted the dynamics the communication trust relationships like all of that was kind of lost beforehand and after her treatment like i can say that now she just has an overall awareness of like her boundaries insight um and even being i feel like even her voice like she's able to speak out more able to say different things which i didn't even realize like i mentioned earlier in my family like we'll kind of throw jokes or bring stuff up like way down the line and it's just kind of like her being able to set those boundaries. It really impacted kind of like, oh, okay, like set a new understanding on me and also brought some awareness to where like what I didn't realize how alcohol had been such an impact. And I've seen the change on like family gatherings, like where it went from everybody was turned up to a 10 to where like we're remembering and everybody's at a three, but it's still okay. Like you're remembering these things. Um, and I think too, like, so that would be that would be one. And I think a lot of my mom's change too happened when her relationship with Christ and truly like giving that up and, and dying to that those ways and stuff. Um, so I'm always going to like, I don't know, integrate, you know, my faith in that because I just feel like that's done a lot on just where I where I'm going and what things that I've been able to let go of throughout my family. Yeah, it sounds like your mom breaking that cycle kind of helped the rest of your family too, right? Not just you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, in my like everybody, I mean, we have our own our own journey, right? My family isn't too big. My on my mom, she only has me, so she did impact that to where like everybody else. I can't, I don't know about their own like alcohol use, but it has impacted just their view on like boundaries or what is that or saying things, you know, on even what that looks like. Um, just because I think everybody knows her story and what she's been through. So just the process, the healing that's taken place, I think that's what's planted the the most hope. And also like for my, her grandkids, like they know a whole different side. They know a whole different person without that, right? Because there's not even a, they've never even seen that, that side. So it's just amazing to see like the transformation in seasons of our lives like things that we went through and how we can put them down and we don't have to pick them back up. Yeah. Well, that explains why you're such a boss lady and the way that you show up taking up space in all the places. <laughs> That's awesome that your mom was an example, a positive example for you. Yeah, she was. Do you have any resources where people can seek substance use treatment or start to read about or listen to for help if they aren't ready to fully step into the ter therapeutic space for it? Yeah, um, I mean, there's resources online on, I think it's the SAMHSA website, like there's so many different, different websites, there's AA, even if you're not interested, let's say you had a bad experience, just being real, that happens, I mean, there's different meetings online that you can go to and attend virtually, even if you feel like, is this for me, is this not, I would say, um, if you have a family member who's using, there's also meetings for that as well my mind just completely went blank on what the meetings are called, but they're not called AA. Um, 
I'll figure it out. But there's also those group meetings that you can attend where it's other family members who have been impacted by somebody using substances and it teaches you like how to set boundaries with them, how, when to know like how not to be giving them money anymore or just the unhealthy habits. So you start to hear from others and learning that and also learning about the disease of addiction and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. I think you're thinking of Al-Anon for AA. Al-Anon. Yeah, I was here like typing on my computer, like my mind was (laughs) No, it's okay. There's a lot of resources out there. And Mm -hmm. I like that you mentioned the AA meetings that are virtual. As part of my program, I had to attend several so that I could see how group was led. And I went to a Marijuana Anonymous or I attended, I didn't go to because um, Mm -hmm. it was in Long Beach. It was actually based out from Long Beach, California. So you don't have to attend if your fear is running into somebody that you know here in Austin, like because of the pandemic, now all of these are so available to us, you can definitely go on to uh, Google and find AA meetings that are anywhere in the country. And you don't even have to show your face. You don't have to show your share your story. You just show up, hear other people's stories. And chips are still given or mailed out. It's it's a similar experience, but you're not in a physical space with somebody. So I know that um, some people, you know, fear the the physical space because of judgment and embarrassment and shame and everything that comes with substance use. So you do have that option that, that's virtual and you can go to any state. I was one of them was in New York. The other one was in Long Beach. And I think the third one I attended was like from Colorado or something. So it was pretty cool. Great. I yeah. love that. Yeah, and then if also um, when you go, if you want to go like more faith-based route, they have the Celebrate Recovery. I'm not too sure if Celebrate Recovery does online or not, Mm -hmm. um, but many churches have those set up as well. And there's different, like you can either go through the AA book or there's there's different books. I want to say it's a smart, smart recovery um, is another one where the the God component is pulled out of it for someone Mm -hmm. who wants to see like from more of a non-religious aspect through the AA program. So that's an option for people as well. And if you're looking for, you know, if you need help, like getting into an, an assessment or anything like that, or even just getting screened, like to see, like, do I have an issue, right? And somebody can ask you a bunch of questions and really help break things down for you. That doesn't mean you're going into treatment tomorrow. It just means like you're going to have a better understanding. Remember, you hold the power, the autonomy to say, like, I don't want to go. Unless you are being forced by law enforcement, that's different. But um Cinecore is one where they do offer like there's a lot of state funding too if somebody doesn't have the funds a lot of these places take insurance um integral care is, is one that you can contact you can just like google their number but integral care has like a crisis unit where they can come out so if somebody is experiencing like withdrawal symptoms or just in a crisis maybe they're in a psychosis mode from using psychosis maybe that which that means like maybe they're seeing things maybe they're hearing things or you just don't know what's going on from their substance use that would be a good one to call because they have different connections as well to programs that can help detox or helping somebody get seen with medication or anything like that meeting their basic needs and get them set up with some case management would that be the same as MCOT or is it a different yeah. team? So okay. MCOT, Integral Care is just the name of the entire like mm-hmm. organization. And then MCOT is the crisis unit that actually comes out and does those health calls. So my mobile crisis outreach team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. So is there anything else that you would like to share that hasn't been covered already about substance use and or trauma? 
Um, no, I think that we've done a lot. I would say more for trauma, just like real like I think really accepting like this is normal and our body was designed and created. Our body was created specifically to respond in dangerous situations. So understanding that when your body is responding, it's because something's feeling dangerous or unsafe to it. And it could be, you know, an effect from trauma that you've experienced. Excuse me. It could be an effect from trauma that you've experienced. So really just being in tune with that rather than like trying to work through it or trying to cover up what you're experiencing, being more in tune on like allowing your body to process um, and connecting with the therapist. I think that's the best route just to help like help guide, like you mentioned earlier, like shining that light on like what is going on or what am I experiencing? Um, and just knowing that like everybody deals with something. The only thing is whether they're going to admit it or not, but everybody has experienced some form of mental illness throughout their life. Um, whatever that looks like, whether it's depression, anxiety, you know, it's just more so acknowledging what that is and being able to, to deal with it in a healthy way, cope with it. And the same thing with substance use. I, I believe that everybody's been touched by substance use in some way, whether it was directly or indirectly, you know, I think everybody can relate to that. Yeah. Well, we've wrapped up the topic for the day. Um, and I want to make sure that people are able to get in touch with you as well. So if you could share with us, um, what, where you practice, what modalities you're certified trained in, and then if there's any upcoming events that you're going to be a part of or how people get in touch with you via social media. Um, I'll link all of this stuff at the bottom, but just so that, you know, you can, you can advertise yourself as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, as far as modalities, I would definitely say, like, I focus more on <clears throat> talk therapy with some integrative, like EMDR, trauma work. I do some skill building from some DBT work. Um, it looks different for everybody. Sometimes I'll util utilize some motivational interviewing, which I think is very good on, like, just having a toolbox where we're going to grab from different things. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Desiree Tellez. Um, that's on IG or Facebook. And then my website is www.telluscounseling.com. So like my last name, but instead it's tell us. So T-E-L-L-U-S counseling. Um, and what I have going on. So in July, I'm actually going to be launching like a monthly study release. And that's going to be like a monthly journal that's more faith-based, integrated, um, and then also I have in a few months focusing another study that will be faith-based focused on like inner child healing and some trauma work. Um, so you can definitely like reach out through the website or message me on Instagram to get connected and just find out, learn more about what, what I'm doing or what we do over there at Tell Us Counseling. That's super awesome. And I think we're recording this episode just in time for the research yeah. opportunity to come around. So Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for being on today and showing and sharing all of the wisdom that you have on this topic. Um, I know there's so much more to be said. Um, I could just, you know, there's, <laughs> these are just questions that I put together and we could continue talking about this topic forever. But I think, um, I think we covered a lot today. And so I, I totally appreciate that you came on and let's see how many people we reach, right? Let's see how many people yeah. God leads us to with this episode. Yeah, for sure. I definitely agree. Don't, um, 
you know what, and the work you're doing, don't get discouraged. Like you said, I think even if it's one person, even if it's not, the one thing is it may not be somebody today or tomorrow, but these are recorded. These are, it could be somebody next year, you know, and the one message that you provide helps them to get the help that they need. So just staying encouraged in that. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And yeah, yeah, I, I'm just looking forward to see what, what other collaborations I could do with other people and then maybe continue to do with you because you have expertise in so many different areas so if you could mentor me and take me under your wing I would take me under your wing that would be awesome (laughs) awesome well thanks so much again and um we'll be in touch I really hope that y'all enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Theis um I hope you felt her energy and how like amazing of a person and resilient of a person she is as she mentioned um and yeah so thank y'all for joining me remember to like the video or the audio on whatever platform you're listening subscribe to my channel and um comment comment that's the call to action for y'all to comment any of the curiosities that y'all have about mental health or therapy Um, depression, about anxiety, about EMDR, questions that come up from other podcasts that you've already watched on Doses of Darling. If there is something that you need clarification on, definitely let me know in the comment section. Um, Yeah. Thanks again. Muchas gracias. I will send you all off with some love, light, and many, many blessings.